If I would ask you, is doctrine important? What would you say? Which doctrine is important? People say justification. If I ask you, is confessional document important for the church life? What if I ask you, is a right administration of the sacraments, is that important? The Lord's Supper, baptism, is that important? Are they important? What about Bible reading? Are you reading the Bible on your own? Is that important in your Christian life? What would you say? Is prayer important? What about church discipline? What about Sunday school? Raising up the next generation. Is that important? Sunday school important? What about evangelism? Opening your mouth and to share the gospel. Is that important? What about missions? Short-term missions, long-term missions, how we support the missionaries, how we get the reports from them. Is that important? Is is evangelism and missions, is that important? Foreign missions, home missions. What about Bible translation? What about pastoral care? Is that important? What about visitations? Is that important? What about giving? Is that important? What about serving? Is serving important in the church? Let me ask you this now. Is fellowship important? All the questions, obviously, they are all important part of the church life or Christian life. All the things that I've mentioned, there, there was not a thing that you could skip over and call yourself a whole Christian. And I intend, by the grace of God, to build our church up in all those areas. But if I ask you, is fellowship important, what would you say? I think many Christians think of fellowship as at best optional, at worst Nuisance. It's not that important. What's really important is the doctrine. You get the doctrine right. You preach the gospel. You have right administration of sacraments. And all of those things that I've just mentioned. But if I ask you, is fellowship, is it really important? I don't know what you were saying. But many Christians could live without fellowship especially post-pandemic age. But as you know, the very name of Ecclesia assumes that there is a corporate community. You read Acts, first few chapters of Acts, how it began, how it exploded. I mean, you cannot read that chapter and the book and say to yourself, I could live my Christian life all alone by myself with a bunch of books. I don't think anybody would say that. Covenant theology assumes covenant community. Great commandment and great commission cannot be fulfilled without some sort of fellowship. Christians living together for Christ, that's the church. So today, 
I am here to tell you and argue that the fellowship with other believers, with other saints, is as essential as any other functions of the church. Without fellowship, there is no church. If you look at the section, I am doing something unusual. And I've said it many, many times because this Sunday preaching is the only time that I have everyone uh, together. So I might as well do this. If you were, this would be like vision casting in other churches. Um, we are starting the men's group, and I am preaching today in support of that. I want everyone, whether you are men or women, children, I want you to read this and know why we are doing this, and you have some fundamentals of of what fellowship and why fellowship should be there in the church. But just for our own sake, for our church, let, let, let's just read this uh, brief introduction. We want to do this men's group. The purpose is this, to promote brotherly love for one another through the gospel fellowship. I mean, that's an obvious thing. But like we have read from the larger catechism, you begin with the very basics. Why? So that we could love one another. Second one is to serve the church alongside with each other. Like Nehemiah 3 that we talked about. You rebuild this section. Next to it, brother so-and-so. Brother so-and-so. And obviously this extends to sisters, women's group, or Sunday school and so on. The final purpose is to raise next generation men of God and future officers of this church. I am not, not thinking about officer training. Believe me, I've been thinking about it for a long time. If you want to, by next year, have our own officers and so on, where are we going to begin? We have to begin with the very fundamental gatherings like this. This is the only way that I could discern who could be those leaders of this church. We cannot forever depend on augmenting elder from another church. We have to have our own men from this congregation to lead and shepherd this congregation alongside the elders already that we, we have. So those are the purposes that I could think of. Schedule is we would, once again, this is the very basic steps uh, that we are going to take. So it could change over time. But we will follow Sunday school schedule that you see on the back. We thought about many different options, but by following this, we have two advantages. That is, you could actually try to participate as you look at your own schedule. If you cannot come to all of that, 
try to come once or twice. And I know some of men, their wives are due soon, and they won't be able to do this. We all understand. But schedule is that. And second benefit would be there would be terminus. I always like when church events are scheduled, I want to see the ending point. Because it's very hard to keep up certain meetings forever. Forever meetings are very difficult to maintain. So these March from March, few chances for you to participate. And during the summer, probably, if there will be other opportunities, that we will think about that. But that's how we are going to begin. What are we going to do after service? Um, sermon-based discussions and applications and prayers for one another so that we don't have to read. Most people do not read. So if we start a book, nobody's going to read. So, so that's, this, this will be a sermon-based. Success. I thought about success. I've listened to one of those leadership podcasts a long time ago. And they say you need to define success so everybody knows what that should look like. Success for this endeavor would be when all men participate regularly and persist in it with joyful expectation. So in order for us to do this, we need some help from sisters. So far, sisters, they've been meeting at Sister Julie's house once a month. So there's a Sunday school. It's very important. So I encourage sisters, if you would volunteer uh, to teach or TA, being a TA and assistant, that would be nice. That would free up some men to participate fully during. So this will really function as the adult. It will replace adult Sunday school or, or so. So, so in the beginning, the elder, elder Tom and Brother John will have the, uh, the facility. They will be facilitators. They will be gathering people. They will be asking questions. But over time, we may have multiple men. I don't know. And, and it has to be small enough. We don't want to have men like 10 men in a group. Because we are expecting this to be a smaller unit of groups meeting so that we will know, get to know one another and, and have fellowship with one another. That's, the, that's, that's what I want to do. I hope all of you could prepare by praying for this. Even in my own uh, time when I came to this church, I've tried this at home, my place. But it's very difficult for men to gather on Friday night or Saturday morning. It's just impossible. During the week? I don't know. I don't think so. So Friday's out. Saturday morning's out. So only time that we have is Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. And you have, if you are a, a mature Christian, you have already got rid of all the worldly affairs. There really shouldn't be anything that is pressing on a Sunday. Now, I need to get back home. I need to do something. You should have done it all in six days. So Sunday, you could fully engage in these spiritual activities. 
So that's my hope and prayer. So all men, you pray about this so that we could succeed. I don't want this to fizzle out. That's why I've been postponing this. Because when you, in a small church, you start something and it fizzles out, you are discouraged. And it is very difficult to start another one. So in one sense, this is critical. If this doesn't happen, if nobody participates in it, then that, that really will discourage all of us. So I want you to pray for this, for even for yourself. If you're hesitating, pray about it. Women, ladies, pray for this. Pray for the men. And this is, before God could bless this church, we need to have these ministries in place. So that's where we are coming from. And what I want to do today is to look at uh, what John Owen teaches in his uh, book. And I've just picked up this small book, Duties of Christian Fellowship. And I will talk about 15 of them. And, And we are not going to spend too much time in all 15 points because really they overlap in the second half. But I will spend some time in the beginning. And again, this is unusual time and it's a, a way of doing things. But there are plenty of the texts, God's word, that he is basing these points upon. So, let's begin. And I will try to move quickly for, through this. But notice the subtitle, the title of this, Ashcom. A cluster of the grapes of Canaan brought to the borders for the encouragement of the saints traveling to the land with their faces toward Zion. Or, right, if you read any Puritan works, their titles are page long. Sometimes it takes up the whole page. And he couldn't settle which one he would settle, so he says, or... Rules for directing believers how to walk in fellowship according to the order of the gospel. And I am talking about the second section. Keep this in mind. I am not merely talking about men's group. But this will be the reasoning, rationale behind such meetings to promote fellowship between the believers in the church. But this will also apply for the ladies. Sunday school, but especially those of you who may think that fellowship is an option or you could just be a good Christian without intermingling with other believers, this should be a corrective measure to that. That's my aim, to see that this is an essential part of Christian life. So rule number one, and I will spend some time Quoting from the book, rule number one, believers have a duty, not an option, duty of affectionate, sincere, genuine love in all things towards one another. A love compared to that of Christ for the church. Look at John 13. A new commandment I give to you, this is Jesus speaking, that you love one another. What's new about that? But this, that's the emphasis, that you love one another just as I love, have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, 
By this, all people, you are also are my know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he says this: Love is the fountain of all duties towards God and man. The basis of all rules that concern the saints, the bond of communion, the fulfilling of the law, the advancement of the honor of the Lord Jesus, and the glory of the gospel. What is the basis? Love. Love is the fountain, foundation of all duties towards God and man. Ten commandments. You can talk about ten commandments. You take out love. Then you cannot fulfill any duties toward God and men. It is the fountain, rule, scope, aim, and fruit of gospel communion. What is love is, and the fellowship by extension is. The teaching of the Lord Jesus emphasizes no other virtue as highly as that of mutual. Intense, affectionate love amongst his followers. To this end, he gives innumerable precepts, exhortations, motivations, and above all, his own heavenly example. And John Owen says this: the recovery of this fellowship, the recovery of the power and practice of the grace of mutual love, at present. It is a grace that shamefully has been lost amongst those who call themselves Christians, to the dishonor of Christ and His gospel. This is an excerpt from his full work,、uh, works of John Owen. So I looked it up. When did he write this section in his book? This Eshcol. When did he write it? He wrote it in 1648. Now, quizzes and reminders. When did Westminster Confession begin? When did they start writing it? 1643, July 1st. July 1st. 1643. What was happening in 1643? 1642, year before something happens in England, civil war begins. So Westminster Confession began during the war by the order of the Parliament. Now he's writing this in 1648. When did Westminster Confession of Faith was concluded? 1647. So the war really ends in 1648, and 1649, January the 30th, King Charles, Charles the First, is executed in front of Whitehall Palace in London. So he is writing this during the time of the Civil War. At that time, people, families were torn apart. Churches were torn apart. It is not like now. 
It's not Democrats versus Republicans like this. At the time, I've read few accounts. Families, actually, brothers took arms against each other, father against the son. Most of the accounts were the, for, of the nobles. If you are just a commoner in the village, you have no choice. It is your Lord who is declaring either for Charles or for the roundheads. So you are a commoner, you have no choice. If your Lord uh, you know, declares for Charles, you are against Charles, you have no choice but to die for Charles, King Charles. So during the time, imagine, churches were not verbally fighting. They were actually killing each other. Christians taking up arms against each other, literally killing each other. And John Owen is writing this, that this power and practice of the grace of mutual love is, is lost. And to the shame and dishonor of Christ and his gospel. We, by the grace of God, we are in a much better position and we should be able to recover some of it. And he says this, this love this love of fellowship. This love is a spiritual grace wrought by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers by which their souls are drawn out to seek the good of God's children. It unites our hearts to those we thus love and is accompanied by a joy, a delight, and a satisfaction at seeing them blessed. So he says this art is lost. Nobody's really doing it, killing each other. But this love is a spiritual grace robbed by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. What that really means is, this kind of fellowship cannot be done because we set it up as a program. This kind of fellowship will only happen by the works of the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? By seeking Him in and through the word, holding on to the promise, seeking his presence in your own heart. That's why we need to pray about this. The artificial devices, mechanism, mechanisms, programs, as you know, it does not, they do not last. We are doing this really, men's group and beyond, not for the sake of setting up another program, but to stir up within us, among us, in this church, the genuine love we all know in our own hearts that must be there towards each other. And the truth is that love will not come from you. In our natural state, we are cold and dead in our own hearts. And it should be inflamed by the Word and through the Spirit. So that's the spiritual grace that we need to seek. So he concludes, he has many points, but a couple of points in this section is this. It is the reason why you should obey and participate in the fellowship where you could love one another is first the command of God. It is the nature of the whole law because the love is the fulfilling of the law in Romans 13. 
The seventh reason for him is the impossibility of performing any other duty without it. That's right. Without love for God, for each other, there, there are no other duties that you could actually perform. How can you serve? How can you teach? How can you share the gospel? How can we have all other functions of the church without it? It presupposes mutual love. So that's why you should think of fellowship as not an option, but it is a demonstration of your justification as an evidence of it. Rule number two. Believers must maintain continual prayer for the prospering of the church under God's protection. I think that's very good. Why should you gather together often so that we could pray for the prospering of the church? Prayer is a benefit, according to him, benefit which the poorest believer can bestow. And the greatest potentate, that is king, has no power to refuse. So when you gather, let's say there's a beggar and the king in a small group together. Beggar could pray and the king could receive that prayer. He has no power to refuse. We must pray for each other, for all saints. It is the duty required from all its members. And as we gather, we shall do that. Rule number three, believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by their actions and sufferings for the purity of the ordinances, for the honor, liberty, and privileges of the congregation, and in order to help others in the face of all opponents and adversaries. Rule number four, believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity, both in general and in particular. As you gather and as you pray, as you love one another, you are in fact maintaining the unity in the church. Ephesians 4. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to try to maintain that which already exists by the operation of the Holy Spirit. He says this, unity is the main aim and the most appropriate fruit of love. There is no other Christian duty urged with more earnestness and vehemence than that of unity. Carefully watch ourselves and others for the first signs of any beginnings of strife which are like the first escape of water that could bring down the dam. So as you gather, you are praying for each other, showing love, but maintaining unity, but also you are observing yourselves and others for any sign of strife. That's good. Rule number five. Believers are to separate and keep apart from the world and from the men of the world in all their ways of false worship, 
so that we are seen to be a different people. John 15, 19, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Revelation 18, 4, come out of her. I think this is very important. Why do we fellowship with other Christians? Because we are in fact already separated from the world. Someone, he says, someone who will not separate from the world and from false worship has separated himself from Christ. It's talking about the way we walk and behave. He says this, any delight of conversation and familiarity in situations where enmity and opposition to the gospel exist, we should not associate. We are not to engage in any way with excesses and idolatries of worldly religion. To delight in the company, fellowship, society, and conversation of dubious and headstrong people manifests a spirit that is not committed to Christ. In vernacular, You could tell a lot about a person by looking at whom he is or she is associating themselves with. Look at their friends, then you could tell a lot about them. You spend more time with non-Christian friends than Christian believers. He simply says, it just shows that you are not committed to Christ. Rule number six. Believers should engage in frequent spiritual conversation for edification according to the measure of their gifts. I think this is very important. Why aren't we good at evangelizing people? When you think about evangelism, you are asking a lot from a Christian. Unless you are a talkative person, you like to engage people in conversations, your natural state will not do that. But you need to overcome that. And you need to broach the subject that you are not really confident to talk about. So I think the right way of doing evangelism is not to start with evangelism. You don't ask people to dunk if you don't know how to dribble and shoot the layup. Like that, you have to begin with, I think this is a great wisdom. Believers should engage in frequent spiritual conversation for education. You, 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 you just have a conversation about Jesus with believers first, where you feel safe, where, where you could hone your skills to have conversations. You learn something about apologetics, things like that. So you begin there. You don't begin in the streets. You could. You could, but you will not last. He says, you should do that ordinarily, occasionally, and by a special meeting. And he says this, let all useless talk be put away then. The time is short and the days are evil. Let us be convicted 
that we have neglected so many precious previous opportunities of growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and of doing good to one another. Let the rest of our few and evil days be spent in living for him who died for us. Be not conformed to this world or to the people of this world. The very next day, the King Charles was executed. The Parliament caused two people to preach for them. And one of the men was John Owen. And later on, he comes second time and Oliver Cromwell listens to his preaching. And by coincidence, they meet again, and John Owen becomes Cromwell's chaplain. So he travels with him to Irish conquest, Scottish conquest. He was there, seeing the brutal campaigns against Irish and the Scottish. He comes back home, and he becomes the vice-chancellor of Oxford University, basically chancellor because Cromwell was the president. It looks like a great story, John Owen, but he had, I forget the exact number of his children, 11 or 12, all died before him. The greatest theologian that was ever produced by by the English, English, England, with all the glory that he was able to be partaker of. His personal life, every single one of his children dies before him. He calls it evil days, few days. Let us be convicted that we have neglected so many previous opportunities of growing in the knowledge of Christ. Wouldn't you say it? Wouldn't you admit it? Wouldn't I admit it? We are growing older. And people say age is a relative thing. But I feel it. And how many days a year God gives you? Live for Christ. Rule number seven. Now everything kind of converges and sounds the kind of same, but I'm going to read it and make a couple of comments. Rule number seven. Believers must bear with one another's infirmities, weaknesses, sensitivities, and failings in meekness, patience and pity, and providing help and assistance. Normally we think of small groups to get something out of it. When I don't get something out of it, I don't go because it does not benefit me. But rule number seven turns it around. Rather, you should bear that person's weakness. In modern term, you would say, well, that person's weird. I don't like him. Why would I spend next 30 minutes with that guy? That's exactly why you should go to bear that person in meekness. Rule number eight. Believers must support one another tenderly, affectionately in their various circumstances and conditions, bearing one another's burdens. It does not happen by program or by mandate, but by associating with each other in normal times with 
with much affection. Rule number nine, believers are voluntarily to contribute and share in temporal things with those who are truly poor in a way that is suitable to their necessities, wants, and afflictions. Rule number 10, believers ought to note watchfully and avoid carefully all causes and causers of divisions. They are particularly to shun seducers, false teachers, and those who spread heresies and errors that are contrary to the Word of God. When the normal ministry is going on in that fashion, you should be able to point out who are the false brethren in the church. Proactively, before he or she seduces other people. In my own case, when I was doing a church planting, there was a guy who, who used to come. And a few weeks later, I found out he was taking my church members to his father's church. I don't know what he was teaching, but that's not a normal way of doing church. You don't go to another church and steal the sheep. Like that, I don't think we have people who are teaching heterodox. But this is a good way to detect that kind of teaching or correct them. Rule number 11, believers should cheerfully accept the lot and portion of the whole church in prosperity and affliction and not draw back for any reason whatever. And he discusses in that section apostasy. People who fall away from church. Every unrecovered step backwards from the ways of Jesus Christ reveals the unfaithfulness of the heart, whatever form of professions there may have been. So in the small groups, we could encourage one another to remain fervent for the kingdom of God. Rule number 12, in church affairs, believers must not discriminate between persons, but condescend to the weakest brother and perform the, the least service for the good of fellow believers. Rule number 13, if any member is in distress, persecution, or affliction, the whole church is to be humbled and to be earnest in prayer on his behalf. I just briefly mentioned, if I don't get anything out of it, I don't go. But instead, we should be able to contribute. That's right. There may come a time that you would need some help from someone. And if you haven't given one, it's very difficult for you to ask for one. So, if you are mentally healthy, spiritually healthy, then contribute. Do associate with someone that you will not normally associate with. By doing so, you will learn the heart of Christ. You will be humbled. You will be ministering. You will have the pastor's heart. And you will understand and you will become more patient toward other people. 
God is as delighted by his church's fervent prayers as by their thankful praises. He therefore calls them by his various providences to fulfill this duty. Rule number 14. Believers must watch one another's behavior carefully and warn one another to avoid all disorderly conduct. If any offending member would not accept such warning, their case must be brought to the church. You know, he's talking about church discipline. He says there are two ways of warning people, methods of warning. First is warning by power. That would be the church court. But there will be a second one, warning fraternally by way of love. So it's much better to start from there with there, from, 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 from that, that, that group, with love. By love, you correct someone. You confront someone there, in that, in that level, on that level, before it becomes a, some kind of church discipline action. Church discipline you cannot be obsessed with it. In all practical terms, it, is, it, is, it, it costs both ways. So it's much better for us to have a proactive group or groups where it is a natural brotherly correction. Whether it's in doctrine, whether, whether it is character, whether it's in it's that person's lack of duty performing, then you could gently correct them. I think that's another function of the small group that we could think about. The last one. Believers should live and walk in an exemplary way in all holiness and godliness to the glory of the gospel, the edification of the church, and the conviction of those outside the church. As you could tell, there are many things that overlap. But when you go home, do not throw away this, though I will put this up in our, in our blog, the whole thing. Read them. As you spend February, especially men, read over this. There are 15 rules, whatever, whatever touches you, whichever touches your heart. Read the Bible Text. There are a lot more in it, but I only try to quote only a couple of them. But read them and pray about them. You know these things are right things. You know these are right teachings. If we had John Owen, John Owen, could you come and preach for us next Sunday? Can you talk about church fellowship? He probably will talk about that. We don't need him. We already have that. Great theologian, but he had time to talk about church fellowship. Let us all pray about this with one heart. Men's group, starting in March, that this will be accomplished in our gatherings. And from this, it will spill over. It will spill over to many other places in our church. When this gets going, in a way that we have discussed, we will have people serving. We will have people Correcting, teaching, loving, contributing, sharing. 
for the glory of God. After this, none of us should say, fellowship is an option. Well, I don't like that person. I don't have such, 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 and such. We need to contribute. We need to be that person who tell, who tell other people, come and join us. Can I help you? The fact of the matter is that all of us, as far as I could tell, you know enough. We know enough. It's time to share. It's time to contribute. What is holding you back? Pray that God will remove that obstacle. Abram left. Jesus left. And Lord willing, it is time for you to leave behind your comfort zone and go. Go. If you have never done anything like this, well, go. Go. It's okay. Pray and go. And you will benefit. You will grow. I hope that happens. Whole month, read this over and over again. Pray that God will be at work in our people's hearts. Let's pray.